Hello, welcome, and thanks for tuning in to Jade Talks Depth. First of all, a special shout out to everyone who has downloaded my podcasts. Yay! Woo! For Jade Talk stuff, I've got listeners from Australia, New Zealand, and the USA. If you really enjoy what you've heard so far, then please leave a review on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcasting app. And make sure you subscribe so you don't miss future episodes. Also, both of these actions help other listeners find my podcast, so it helps spread the word. And now today's episode about death. And if you're wondering what that sound is, it's the sound of Kepler star KIC 122-68220C. Why? Because ultimately, we are all made of stars. There's many angles that death can be discussed, but with this episode, I hope to make the conversation about death as commonplace as the weather. By ignoring death, hoping it will go away, we're denying ourselves the possibility of living our best life possible thinking that time is endless and the opportunities will always arise. I talk about how a simple app helped evolve my outlook on death, and I have a special guest, Margot, who will be joining later in the podcast. Margot bravely shares her story about helping her terminally ill mother end her life, and ultimately how that experience taught her how to live. Just in case you didn't pick it up by the title, a trigger warning that this podcast openly discusses death. It is not about religion or any ideas of afterlife. It is about acknowledging that we all die. And by recognising that, instead of pretending it doesn't exist, we can hopefully lead happier and more fulfilling lives by being honest about what's important to us and spending our limited time accordingly. So that when that moment arrives, there's no fear or regret, only peace knowing you lived your best life possible. But I just wanted to be clear, this podcast is not meant to be morbid or in any way promote death. It is simply about recognising that it's inevitable and to ensure we live our best life possible. I recorded this episode because in Australian society, especially in my family, we don't talk about death. It's taboo. No one's allowed to bring it up because you'll be quickly shut down. Even when someone has died, I suggested to my mother that she write a will, and her response was, no way, then everyone will try and kill me off. There's no easy way to segue into death, so I'm just going to get straight into it. And first up, I'm going to be talking about the app We Croak, which is based on an old Bhutanese philosophy. According to those that live in Bhutan, contemplating death leads to a happier life. So when I read about an app that helpfully reminds you five times a day that you're going to die, curiosity got the better of me, and so I paid $1.50 for the privilege. The first few notifications I received made me stop whatever I was doing and contemplate whether that was fulfilling enough to warrant completion. By the next week, it was almost annoying, especially as the notifications are randomly dispersed. You may get three notifications in two hours, or you may get one in eight hours. Either way, constantly being reminded that you're going to die does a few things to your mindset. When you're reminded of death, social media gets tossed aside. If you want to break the habit of being connected to your phone, then download the app WeCroak. Each notification prompts you to open the app and read an inspirational quote. One recent quote was by Antal 
Zerb, which is, And while there is life, there is always the chance that something might happen. Another one was by Jack Kerouac. Nothing ever happened. Not even this. And this one from Pablo Picasso. Only put off until tomorrow what you are willing to die having left undone. Sometimes the quotes aren't clear in their meaning, but other times, like the Pablo Picasso one, they really do make you stop and think. I don't always know the people the quotes are from, and each app update refreshes the app with new quotes. But since I've started recording this podcast, I've just received another helpful reminder. Don't forget you're going to die, as if I'd forgotten. By now, you're probably thinking, what a morbid waste of time. But being reminded that eventually everything will end, I've learned to question the importance of everything I do. Do I really need to go to Kmart? No. Do I really need to buy a new phone? No. Do I need to rewatch every episode of Seinfeld? Hmm, debatable. But there's no other features of the app. So upon reading the quote, you're quickly bored and so close it. I have noticed though, I do actually feel calmer. And I have been more productive. There's less guilt about doing things for me. Like the other day, I left the house and sat in the library reading a book about the universe. Why? Because I could. But it's not just about doing things for myself. I also look after some foster kids part-time. And if they want to stay at the park, riding the slide until sunset, then so be it. You don't have to spend lots of money to create happy memories. You just have to spend time. I also recently read an article about the top five regrets of the dying. It was written by a palliative care nurse, and you can find it on the Guardian website. And one of the biggest was spending too much time working, closely followed by losing touch with friends and family. The relevance of this is a large part of my life has revolved around travel, including living overseas in Japan, England and New Zealand. If you can't tell from my accent, I'm Australian. As well as regular extended trips overseas. In my travels, I've amassed friends scattered all over the world, which is great when I'm travelling as I often run into people I know. It actually happens far more often than you'd realise. However, moving around to different countries often meant I lost touch with those I was previously close to. However, in the past week, I have reconnected with several friends I hadn't spoken to in years through no reason other than life gets in the way, and then it becomes awkward. But by opening with... I know we don't talk anymore, but there's no reason we can't. It was enough to break the ice and and acknowledge that I've been slack. And exactly that. There's no reason why we can't rekindle our friendship. Not long after sending that message, I ended up having a two-hour conversation with one of my friends in Japan. And it was fantastic. And it was just like old times. There was no reason apart from life getting in the way. In the last few days, the local news has included tragic stories about a young woman out jogging who was hit by a truck and killed on her birthday, another woman who drowned, and it seems almost every other day there's people dying unnecessarily from car crashes. No matter where you get your news from, every day there's regularly stories about death, and recently natural disasters including earthquakes, volcanic eruptions, fires, floods, avalanches. Death is all around us, and it's easy to switch off when we're being bombarded by the media because it's distant, it's happening to someone else. It's not affecting us directly, until it does. I recently attended the World Press Photo Exhibition at the State Library, and there was one photo by Toby Melville, who worked for Reuters, of a woman on Westminster Bridge, 
who had been hit by a car driven by Khalid Masood in a terrorist attack. The fear and confusion in her eyes pierced right through me. Here was a woman walking in a major city, minding her own business with her partner, and then the next, she's lying on the ground bleeding. And what makes it even more horrific, because as you look at the photograph, you can read the description, and you know that her partner was killed. Meanwhile, she's lying there unaware. This single image encapsulated the idea that death can arrive completely unexpected in any circumstance. Most often we think about death from the view of those left behind, the grieving children, the deserted widow, or the friends who now have an empty seat at the table with a focus on the loss, rather than repurposing that loss into a reinvigorated life. I've seen relatives, friends, neighbours and strangers die. Yet strangely enough, at no time did that equate to modifying life. My grandfather always talked about moving to the Gulf of Carpentaria. We always took it as a joke because he hated cold weather and preferred the constant warmth of the tropics. However, one has to think how different our lives might have been if he had picked up the family and moved up north. And on that, I ask, what have you always dreamt about doing but are yet to achieve? What's stopping you? How can you make it happen? In the past two months, since I've been constantly reminded that I'm going to die, I've finished off a novella that had fallen by the wayside. I've reconnected with old friends. I've read more books. I've finished the last outstanding tasks on my new website. I've attended exhibitions that have been on my to-do list for some time. I've eaten less junk food and equally felt less guilty about eating chocolate. That's not to say my life is not worry or stress-free, but being reminded that In this life, there's a finite number of days has meant I want to make the most of them. What's important in life changes with age and circumstances. Knowing time is finite and this life won't last forever has altered somewhat my perception of what is important. Just creating this podcast, talking openly about death, I feel liberated. Because in Western culture especially, it's deemed inappropriate and depressing to discuss death. With the recent suicides of Kate Spade and Anthony Bourdain, one has to ask if our inability to talk about death surely has a detrimental impact with depressed individuals feeling they can't openly discuss thoughts of suicide without being equally shunned. But recognising, openly discussing and accepting death means we can finally start the discussion about living happier and more fulfilling lives. On the album An American Prayer, Jim Morrison nonchalantly asks in his poem The Movie, Did you have a good world when you died? Enough to base a movie on? You may not want to be constantly reminded that death comes for us all, but wouldn't you prefer to answer with an astounding, yes, my life was good enough to base a movie on, when that time comes? Next up, I have a very special guest, Margot, who is a freelance writer, and who was sworn by her mother that if she ever got terminally ill and could no longer enjoy life, that she would reduce her suffering by ending her mother's life. Today, I've got Margot joining me from America. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for having me. And where are you calling from today? I am calling from Roswell, Georgia. No relation to Roswell, New Mexico? No. Roswell, New Mexico (laughs) is supposed to be a lot more interesting than Roswell, Georgia, from what I understand. So, no. (laughs) Awesome. So... For listeners that don't know your story, how did you learn about being hepatitis C positive? 
Um, but it was a complete surprise to me. I had maybe heard of hepatitis C, but didn't really know anything about it. And when I was living in Tucson, Arizona, I was around 19 years old and very broke and needing money. So there was a clinic where you could donate plasma and they would pay you like $40 or something. So I thought, okay, I'll, I could use that money. So I'll do that. And, uh, after I donated the plasma, I got a call a couple days later saying that my plasma was unusable because I was hepatitis C positive, which I, I, I kind of had no idea what it meant. And I had to Google it and call my mom and, you know, do some research to, to learn about it because I didn't really understand what that meant. And what impact did that have on you? I wish that I could say it had a big impact on me because I feel like most responsible adults, when they find out that they have a pretty serious virus or, or illness, they seek treatment and, and try and take care of it. At the time, my life was, I had no idea what I was doing with my life. So I kind of, I read about it and basically found out that usually it sits in your system and doesn't physically affect your health for anywhere from 15 to even 25 years. And so I kind of thought, oh, I have plenty of time. I'm not even going to worry about this right now. (laughs) So (laughs) at the time I didn't do, I I kind of was like, eh, this doesn't affect me right now. So I'm not going to do anything. And I pretty much just that's what I did. I did nothing. And what does it mean to be hep C positive? What can happen? It is a blood disease. So it's, it's transmitted through blood, any, any type of tattoos or blood transfusions or um, drug use or sex. It, it is how it's transmitted. And like I said, it sits kind of dormant in your system for many, many years and eventually it will, um, it's a virus that will attack your liver um, and will eventually cause cirrhosis of the liver and or liver cancer and liver failure and death if it's not ever treated. Usually it kills people. What treatments are available? There are, well, there's been a treatment available for many, many years uh, called interferon and when I found out that I had hepatitis C, I called my mom and found out that she also has hepatitis C and had for many years. And this was all news to me. So I was, I was kind of like, what do you mean? You you have the same thing and you're, you seem fine. And, And so she explained it all to me. And she said that there is a treatment, even this was, let's see, 15 years ago when I found out. So even then there was a treatment and there had been for a while, but she had never done it because it has horrible side effects. Um, it's called interferon, and it basically makes you feel like you have the flu for about six months. Um, and it's only, I think it's, this is possibly incorrect, but it's only like 75% effective. Something It's not 100% effective. Yeah. So you could go through the whole thing, have the flu for six months, and then still have hepatitis C at the end of it. So... My mom had never done it because she just thought, well, that's just not worth it. And I kind of felt the same way. But um, since then, in the past five-ish years, I want to say, there's been a lot of treatments that have come out that are 98, 99% effective with very few side effects, um, which is the, I took one of these treatments called Harvoni, um, and it 
and it worked and it cured my hepatitis C. Just, uh, I think I was, got my final blood test and was considered completely hepatitis C free, um, about two months ago. So, yeah, so it was an amazing drug, very few side effects, some, but nothing major. Um, and it worked. So, I mean, that's, I guess the 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 most important thing. thing. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) And so your mother didn't receive treatment? She, she did, but it was too late. So she, by the time that she did this treatment that I did, Harvoni, and granted this was several years ago. So she already had been diagnosed with liver cancer and she was very far along in the disease. So she did take Harvoni and did a, I believe it was a 12 week um, cycle of the Harvoni pills and it did cure her hepatitis C, but her liver had already been compromised. It was just, it was too late at that point. And what was the discussion you had as a family about your mother's impending death? Well, we did, I guess as a family, we didn't really talk about her death very much in the beginning because when she was diagnosed with liver cancer from having hepatitis C for, she had it for 30, 35 years and never treated it. So like it does, it it had turned into liver cancer. And in the beginning, we were all, we didn't talk about her death because we were like, she's going to fight this. She's going to beat it. She had had breast cancer about four years prior to this and had was in remission and had, you know, essentially beat breast cancer as well. So we thought she's going to get through this. It'll be fine. And she didn't, but she did fight and, and receive every treatment and chemo and radiation. And like I said, she took the Harvoni to treat the hepatitis C Um, and that was over about a two year period. So we tried to stay really hopeful that some miracle was going to happen and she was going to beat this until towards the last few months, it was very, um, obvious that she wasn't going to beat it. And, um, and that's, I don't, I don't think we ever really started talking about her eventual death as a family. My dad was was and is pretty opposed to talking about anything emotional or um, difficult or anything like that. And th- obviously, you know, this is his wife of 40 plus years. So this is very difficult. So it was really me and my younger sister who talked to my mom about it, talked to the doctors, talked to eventually the hospice nurse, um, and my mom, since I was probably 15 years old, had been telling me, Margo, when I get old, if I get sick, you, you need to kill me. I don't want to live in a hospital bed. I don't want to, you know, be wearing a diaper. And we would kind of laugh about it. I mean, through most of my life, I know it sounds morbid, but that we had a close relationship. And she was like, I just, you're just going to have to do it. You're just going to have to put me out of my misery when I get to the point where I'm just not enjoying life anymore. And I always would say, okay, sure, I'll do that. It's very easy to have that discussion when you're not faced with that eventuality to kind of joke about it. And I know you kind of, you don't think that you're going to end up having to make that decision. A hundred percent. I mean, we're talking from like when I was a teenager, she would say this and I would always think, okay, Okay, mom, come on, fine. Yes, I'll I'll put you out of your misery when the time comes. But I, n- I never expected that that would happen, or at least not for a much longer time. And it really, all of a sudden, it was it was happening, and it was 
decision that had to be made, but it wasn't really ever a decision. I mean, I knew that that's, even though he joked about it, that's what she wanted. Yeah. That's a hundred percent. There was never a question in my mind, like, would, would her, you know, opinion on this be different now that she's sick? Does she want to continue living the way that she is? Cause at the end, liver cancer is a brutal death. And so there was just never a question in my mind. I knew that that's what she wanted. And my sister knew that as well. And um, we didn't talk to my dad about it because I don't know if he could have handled that. You know, he, he knew that she was going to die. I'm not sure. And, and we haven't even talked about it really to this day. I'm not sure that he would be able to handle a conversation about like, we're going to help mom die. She's going to die anyways, but this is, it's taking too long and she's, un, she's miserable. She's not even herself. I mean, there was no, there's no point in prolonging that. Yeah. Um, so sorry, I went off on a tangent, but your, no. your initial question was, what was the discussion that we had about her eventual death? And, and like I said, we really didn't up until the very end. And at that point it was just me and my sister kind of trying to figure out how and when we do what we knew that she wanted us to. And how did you prepare in the lead up to her death? I guess the only preparation that really that we really did was was kind of figuring out how to do this, because by the time that um, we felt, you know, she's not going to get better. She was pretty much bedridden and she wasn't able to go to the bathroom by herself and we knew that this was it, but we kept wondering, asking the hospice nurses, how long, you know, how long is she going to go on living like this? Cause she's miserable. And she would say, it could be a couple of days. It could be a couple of weeks. And so to prepare for it, we really just, once we knew that she was not going to get better and that this could go on for weeks, that was it. And we talked to the hospice nurse um, and, and asked her, you know, what can we do to kind of move this forward? I, I, there's no nice way to say it, really. <laughs> I, uh, but, you know, we didn't, it's, it's, not, it's not something that's um, legal or allowed to be done necessarily in Arizona where we were. So the hospice nurse couldn't exactly, it wasn't something that we could openly talk about or that me and my sister felt comfortable openly talking about with this hospice professional. She was amazing and wonderful. And the second we even kind of hinted at that, she knew exactly what we were talking about. And she advised us kind of off the record or unofficially advised us as to what to do. And um, at that point, we had me and my sister went and made the funeral arrangements. And we got my mom's brother to fly out from Los Angeles. And so that was really it. We were waiting for him to arrive so that he could say goodbye. And then, and then that was it. That was kind of the last thing. And we knew that then it was time. How did you decide what day would be her last? Really, it was, like I said, it was that her brother was, was trying to get a flight from LA and come in. And once he did, um, that was it. We just knew that that was the night. Once he had said his goodbye, that was everybody that needed to be there. All of our um, close family members that needed to come in and, you know, say goodbye to her and see her had done so. And really, I think if she had been in her right mind and been able to tell us anything, because at this point she was, you know, not really there, she would have said to do it 
probably weeks prior to when we did. I mean, yeah. she wanted, you know, that was just how she was. She was very straightforward and, and she would have said, just, just do it already. <laughs> so <laughs> we probably waited too long, but, um, obviously her brother really wanted to, to say goodbye. And, and, and after he did, that was it. We just knew it sounds so simple when I'm saying it right now. It really, it wasn't, it was more emotional and it was incredibly, um, surreal, but we were able, I feel like we were able to do it because we had such a strong relationship with her. And I know that's what she wanted. She wouldn't have wanted it any other way. And she, if she could have been, she would have been there cheering us on like, yes, thank you so much. This is what I needed you to do for me. So that's kind of what kept us, I think what gave us the strength to do it because no one, I mean, it's just, no one wants to have to do that. And really, I don't think that anybody should have to. It would be nice if that was an option for people like my mom who are so sick and, and, and don't want to keep living. It shouldn't fall on the family members to have to do that. But unfortunately, you know, that's, it's not an option yet, at least not in Arizona. So currently in Australia, euthanasia is illegal, as is the case in many countries. Mm-hmm. Uh, how did you make it all happen? And what was like the legal hurdles you came across? Or how, basically, <laughs> how was it done? Was it at <laughs> home? Did you travel? Yes, it was at home. She was um, at home. She, we, she never went into like a live-in facility, hospice facilities. She wanted to be um, in her own home with her dog and her cat. And so we had... Her all set up in her own bed. She didn't even have a hospital bed. She was adamant about being in her own bed. And we had a hospice nurse who would come in every other day, I think, just to kind of check on her medicine and see how things were going and really offer me and my sister support and my dad. And there weren't any legal hurdles because it's totally not legal. And so we <laughs> did, you know, we really went, um, we just kind of did it under the radar, I guess. I mean, you know, she was very ill. No one is going to be checking to see if it's not like she was a healthy woman and we gave her too much of her medicine. Um, and it was so unexpected, you know, she was, she was going to die soon. And so, but we had no idea what we were doing because my fear, and this is maybe a little bit morbid or graphic, but my fear was, um, that we were going to give her too much of her medicine that she would end up getting sick and throwing up, but that she wouldn't actually die. Mm -hmm. And that's what I needed to ask the hospice nurse because I said, you know, how much extra medication should we give her? She was taking, you know, several different medications, morphine being one of them. And at this point, she couldn't even swallow a pill. So I was having to shoot a liquid syringe of medication into her mouth several times throughout the day. So when we asked the hospice nurse, you know, we would like to move her death up significantly so that she doesn't have to live like this anymore. And I asked her, how, how much do I give her to make sure that sadly that she doesn't wake up? Um, and luckily the, we had been like blessed with an amazing hospice nurse who was just so, she was so with it. She totally understood and she didn't judge us or, you know, she just helped us. And she told us, this is what you need to do. And if you do this, she will be comfortable. She will not suffer. She will go to sleep and she simply won't wake up. And I mean, I don't remember exactly what that 
day was like, but I do remember that night, me and my sister, my dad, my uncle and his wife and my aunt were all, we had, I think, ordered pizza. We were eating dinner and mom was in the bedroom. You know, she couldn't at this point get out of bed and she wasn't mentally really there. And I think towards the end of dinner, me and my sister just kind of slipped away from the table and said we were going to check on mom. And that's when we did it. And we both kissed her and told her that we loved her and said goodbye. And then we left and I went to sleep at my sister's house so that in the morning when my dad woke up, he could have like a moment with her by himself, which he did. Um, And then he called us and said, you know, mom's gone. You girls need to come over. And, And that was it. What advice would you give someone who finds themselves in a similar situation? I would say that when you're dealing with someone so close to you, like a parent or a sibling or spouse that is terminal, my number one advice would be to spend as much time with them as possible every moment that you can um, and to, to talk to them and ask them what they want because that's, it's the end of their life. So that's what we tried to keep in mind with my mom. You know, if I feel like if we had asked my dad about kind of speeding up mom's death, he would have probably been adamantly against it, but it was her life and it was her death. And so talking to her and knowing what she wanted allowed us to honor that. And I think that 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 would be my advice is that when, when, when you have someone in your life who's very, very ill, to first spend as much time as you can with them. And then second, to try and honor their wishes in, their, in the end of their life and their death as much as you can. How has that whole experience changed your outlook on life? Oh, this is this is the hardest question for me. I don't know if it's changed my outlook on life. I think that it's changed how I live my life every day in that um, it was a, a brutal reminder about life being incredibly short, which is sounds like such a cliche thing to say. And I kind of feel like all of the cliches that you hear, you know, life is so short and don't sweat the small stuff, don't stress out about it. Like all those things that sound so silly and we all have heard a million times, they become so true during and after something like this that it was just such a reminder that this moment is all that we have. So towards the end of her life, I tried to hang on to every moment that I had with her. And they were just laying in her bed with her. You know, we weren't, it wasn't anything amazing, but it was those moments that I hold on to and remember now. And I think that in my life, I try really hard to focus on this moment, even if I'm just walking my dogs or watching TV or cooking dinner. I'm trying, I try to be really present and enjoy right now and not plan and constantly kind of be living for things to come, for things that haven't even happened yet, which is before she died, I felt like I lived my life like, what's the next, what's the next vacation? What's the next life milestone? You know, I'm going to get pregnant. I'm going to do this. I'm going to get a new house. I was married prior to her death and got divorced shortly after her death. So I think that that's how it's, it's changed my outlook on life and that I try to live much more for right now, which is not always easy, but that's, that's my goal. So has that experience changed your outlook on death? 
it has not changed my outlook on death because I have always felt that um, people should be able to die in whatever way they want. So I have always been someone who believes in um, assisted suicide or euthanasia for people who are terminal or who are very, very ill. But it was never something that was very relevant to my life until this happened, obviously. Um, so I think all that this did, it really reiterated my belief in that. People should be able to die how they want and they shouldn't have to suffer unnecessarily. You know, she suffered for a really long time after we knew that she was not going to come back from this. There was no coming back from from this where she was going to be healthy and, you know, going out to dinner and going on walks. It wasn't going to happen. And, and, and she still had to keep suffering, which just seems cruel, honestly. So it, it didn't change, it didn't change my view on death, except for, for making my beliefs even that more strong about that people should, should be able to die when and how they feel is right for them. Yeah. Unnecessary suffering. Exactly. And what's been the response of others that have heard your story? It's been mostly positive. I mean, I think it's been all positive, to be honest. There hasn't been that much of a response. I haven't, I've shared it on my blog and I recently shared uh, the blog post that I wrote on uh, Medium. And so a handful of people have read it and commented, but not a huge response. The response I have gotten has been, thank you for sharing your story. Very powerful, very honest and genuine. And so it's all, it's all been good. The response has all, all been good. What's next for you? Where to from here? <laughs> oh, I wish I knew. <laughs> I don't know. Um, I don't know because that is, I will say that is one way that this experience has drastically changed how I live my life is that, like I said, before my mom died and before all of this, I was married and kind of, you know, had like my plan. I'm going to do this and this and this. And after she died, I got divorced. I quit teaching and decided I was going to be a full-time writer and and I and I'm not planning I just kind of am doing what feels right and whatever comes my way I try to say yes to things like this podcast things that make me nervous or scare me I'm trying to say yes to and um just kind of take things as they come you know for for the the biggest thing after this experience was treating my hepatitis C that was number one because I didn't want to go through what she went through. And I knew that she wouldn't want me to go through that. So, so after that actually happened, which I really never thought it would, I'm just trying to enjoy my life every single day, whatever that means. Yeah. It was quite an experience for you in getting treatment for your hip C. Yes. Yes, it was. Because unfortunately, even though there are several different medications that are available to treat hep C and, and have a very high success rate and very few side effects, that's all awesome. But unfortunately, all of these medications are ridiculously expensive, even with insurance. So I don't have health insurance and without health insurance, they, the Harvoni, 12 weeks of Harvoni costs something like 200 something thousand dollars for the treatment. Yeah. I mean, each pill I think is $2,100 and you, you take 
a pill every day for 12 weeks. I mean, it's astronomical. It's ridiculous. And even with insurance... Is that just the pill companies profiteering? I guess so. That's, I mean, I would imagine so, yeah. It's the pharmaceutical companies because it, which I won't even pretend to understand any of that because I don't, but I can't imagine that it costs $2,000 to produce one pill, which is what they're charging patients. And um, like I said, my mom did do, did this Harvoni treatment, but uh, earlier on in her liver cancer and she had insurance, she had Medicare and really good insurance. And it still costs for a 12 week treatment with insurance. I think it still costs my dad said $40,000, which is a lot better than $200,000, but, but it's still astronomical. Ridiculous. I mean, just unbelievable. And it's shocking to me that so many people have hepatitis C and so few people are able to afford a treatment that cures it. It's mind-boggling. But yes, I. so I had no insurance. I had no idea how I was going to get this medication. But I knew that I had to get this taken care of. So it was about a year, a little bit more than a year after her death. I was having horrible nightmares about that I was diagnosed with liver cancer and that I was going to die in the same exact way. And they were recurring. I kept having these nightmares until one day I said, I have, I have got to figure this out. So I had no idea where to start. I literally emailed every liver doctor, gastroenterologist, infectious disease doctor that I could find an email for in Georgia and just gave them a very abbreviated version of of this story with my mom and that I also had hepatitis C and could they please help me? And I think it was around 50 or 60 doctors total that I ended up emailing and didn't hear back from most of them. A couple I heard back from that said, sorry, you know, there's really nothing we can do for you. Basically, I was looking for if there are any clinical trials or anything, just anything that would allow me to get my hands on this treatment. And one nurse from Emory Hospital here in Atlanta, uh, she wrote back and she said, I don't know, but maybe I can help you. I think that we might be able to get you into this charity care program, which kind of helps people who can't afford medication that they need. And there was a lot of hurdles and paperwork and all kinds of things. But ultimately, she did help me and I was able to get the entire treatment for free. Wow. Yeah. Which was, I mean, it really, I tell my friends and, you know, I told my dad and everybody's of course excited for me and happy for me. And oh my goodness, thank God you're getting this treatment. I mean, that treatment saved my life. You know, I wasn't going to die tomorrow from this, but certainly in 10 or 15 or 20 years I could have. And I don't, anticipate ever there being a time where I happen to have an extra 200 grand laying around to pay for a medical treatment. So the fact that this kind of, exactly, exactly. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. Thank you for reminding me of that. (laughs) But it was, I mean, it was just, I rarely use the word miraculous and this was a pretty miraculous situation for me. I really feel like if my mom exists in the universe in some spiritual way that 
you know, I like to think that she had a hand in helping me get this uh, treatment and, and that it worked and it was pretty painless and I mean, unbelievable to get it for free, but it just highlights the fact that why can't more people get that? Like this could cure this disease and it's so difficult for people to get. Um, it's really unfortunate. What's the name of the charity again? It's called Charity Care and it's through Emory Hospital here in Atlanta and they basically help. Um, I think the only criteria was that I had to make less than a certain amount of money per year and not have insurance. And as a writer, like, no problem. <laughs> that was easy. So, and I think it was, I really connected with this nurse and I was really, I did not a day went by that I was not on the phone with Emery. Just, I'm just checking on my paperwork. I'm just seeing if you guys need anything. Like, I mean, I was relentless with these people because I, needed this medication. So it was, I guess, a happy combination of, of different things that allowed it to happen. But definitely, I'm assuming that there are other hospitals that must offer something similar. So I would tell anyone who has no idea how to get their hands on a medication or a treatment or something that they need to just don't stop asking for help and reaching out because that's the only, this would have never happened if I didn't kind of fight for it and be annoying to every person in the greater Atlanta area who worked yeah. in the hospital. I was annoying and, and emailing and begging for help. And I had absolutely no shame, but I don't have hepatitis C anymore. So I feel like it was totally worth it. Totally. Fantastic. Yeah. Where can listeners find your writing or follow you on social media? Um, I am on Instagram as Margo Lifestyle Blogger. It's a real creative name, I know. <laughs> um, <laughs> and I, my website is margocarmichael.com. So that's, I guess, the best way because it has links to Facebook, Instagram, Medium, and it has um, samples of writing that I've done and my blog and all of that. Awesome. Any plans to publish your story as a book? Yes. Yes. That is my lifelong dream from when I was a little child, not the, to publish a book. I didn't know quite yeah. that this would be the topic, obviously. Yeah. But yeah, I would love to. I think that it's a story that people can relate to. And I would love to um, share more about not only losing a parent and, and helping them end their life how they want to, but how you go on after that. I mean, it obviously affected my life because I was divorced within the same year. And losing your mom, was that a catalyst for the divorce or was it? Absolutely. On that path anyway. No, it was definitely a, a catalyst for the divorce. Prior to my mom dying, we were, we had been married about five years when she died. And the year before she died, we were trying to have a baby and I mean, we, marriage wasn't perfect. I won't lie. It was, we had our problems, but the, my mom's death a hundred percent, it just brought out all of the negative things so much more. And it, when somebody, when your parent dies, when you go through something traumatic, not just a parent, but 
anybody close to you dies or any kind of traumatic experience, it really, you really see who the people that are close to you are, like who they are at their core and how they benefit your life or how they help you. And it, it just, I was, I felt alone. I was married and I still felt alone after she died. And it just, I need, I need a whole book to explain it, obviously. <laughs> but um, yes, it her death highlighted the problems in our marriage and um, it just, pushed us further apart. And I feel like when something like that happens, the hope is that you get closer and you can really lean on and depend on your spouse. And that didn't happen. So that, so that's what kind of prompted us to divorce. And, um, so I think that I have a lot of uh, subject matter to write about in a book. So yeah, I would love to, I think it would be, I'm sure that there are so many people who go through such similar experiences. Um, and I know that that's what I find comforting to read about, um, people's lives who have, I can either learn something from or have kind of been through something similar so that I can see how they dealt with it and maybe, you know, take from that. So I would love to. Awesome. Margo, thank you so much for sharing your story. Yes. Thank you so much for having me. It was a very cathartic experience and uh it was an honor so thank you so much awesome bye if you'd like to read more about margot's story check out her website margocarmichael.com another interesting app is called talk life which is a social community tool where anyone can post how they're feeling and others including trained moderators can offer help and support there's trigger warnings, and like anything, you do get teenagers who try and use it as a way of getting likes. But amongst all the noise, there's some genuinely great stuff that's occurring. You can also filter out ages, so you can only see messages by people in your age bracket. But probably the most important aspect of talk life is you can be anonymous, and it's free. So if you don't feel comfortable talking about how you're feeling, you can still vent to anonymous strangers. It has a messaging feature, so you can take conversations into a more private setting. And because it's used by people all over the world, no matter the time, there will always be someone online. I do have a great story to share about TalkLife, but unfortunately my guest wasn't available before this podcast was going to air, so there will just have to be a part two. A special note, if you're suicidal, then please seek help. In Australia... The Crisis Support Service Lifeline phone number is 131114. In the UK, Samaritans can be contacted on 116123. In the US, the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline is 1-800-273-8255. And other international suicide helplines can be found at befrienders.org. Please know that life is worth living. And no matter how bad things might seem, things can always change for the better. Everything you feel, the situation you're in, is only temporary. If you haven't had a discussion about death with your family or close friends, I challenge you to break that habit. You could also try the app, We Croak, and see how contemplating death changes your outlook on life. Use your time wisely. Try to lead a life of no regrets. Tell people how you feel. Don't feel guilty about making time for you. But most importantly, always live your best life possible.
Thank you so much for listening to Jade Talk Stuff. If you like travel, check out my other podcast, Travelosophy. If you have comments, suggestions or questions, you can tweet me at Jackson. You can follow me on Instagram at Jackson. Podcasting and writing is a solitary life, so please send me your thoughts, even if it's just to say hello. If you'd like to read my travel blog or purchase my play called Compass, which is about the meaning of life, then head to my website, www.jadejackson.com.au. If you'd like bonus podcast episodes, recordings of my poetry and short stories, as well as exclusive handwritten postcards, then head to my Patreon page, which is patreon.com forward slash Jade Jackson, where for just a couple of dollars a month, you can choose different tiers depending on what you can afford. You can have access to some really cool exclusive content and ensure that my podcast stays on the air by helping with costs like hosting fees and recording software. So it's a win-win situation. Don't forget, if you're not uh, signed up to Apple Music, if you click on the Apple Music links on my website, then you get three months free subscription with unlimited downloads. You can get all the latest music, and by doing so, you also help contribute to my website. Thank you very much for listening to Jade Talk Stuff. Bye-bye now. (laughs) 